This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Hey guys, welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me. It's really great to have you back for another episode. So I wanted to put in context, no doubt a lot of you that have been listening to the show are seeing the label of this show thinking, what on earth's going on? I said previously on shows I wasn't really interested in doing political content much anymore other than what I do on straight shooting. So that meant interviewing people from political parties and actively going out there and seeking those types of interviews. Now, the reason I chose that is because, again, I haven't, and I've explained this on shows before, that I really haven't seen much from our politicians, including the pro-gun ones, about really achieving results. Well, in this case, no results because we haven't had any changes to the NFA in 24 years. So this wasn't something uh, to do with Bridget McKenzie or the Nationals or any particular party. It was just a bit of a situation that I wanted to move forward with more hunting-related content and see how things pan out over the next 12 months. And like I said, I haven't done any podcasts uh, with people from political parties for at least just on 14 months now. And so one day I got home from work in the afternoon. I was checking my emails as I normally do. And lo and behold, I got an email from Bridget McKenzie's office. They were emailing me, gauging my interest in doing an interview with Bridget. So I said to myself, wow, this has not really happened before. It's happened on a couple of occasions with pro-gun parties. Uh, but not with anyone from the major parties. So I said to myself, what am I going to do? On previous shows, I said I wasn't really interested in doing this, and to be transparent, this is why I'm doing this intro now. So the first thing I did was I got straight on Patreon, and I said, guys, listen, you guys support me. Your opinions mean a lot to me. Uh, What do you guys think about this situation? And pretty much no one said they wouldn't be interested in hearing from Bridget. So again, I mulled over it for another couple of days thinking, should I do this? Is this something I've already done two interviews with Bridget, one in 2015 and one in 2016? Is this something I'm actually going to be interested? What can my listeners gain out of uh, more information from Bridget? So I emailed back the, the nice girl there at her office and I said, sure, not a problem, provided Bridget's willing to answer some hard questions about the NFA, especially surrounding the sports grants debacle, which everyone knows we saw major issues where she gave money to a gun club uh, for which she did declare you know I've read the report whilst I think she didn't do anything illegal that certainly had some uh, negative impacts on shooters in the media so I said provided she's willing to answer hard questions about a few different topics plus more then I'm more than happy to do the interview not expecting them to probably get back to me and say well you know what were your questions anyway I got the email back from the lovely gal there and she said yep Bridget's more than happy to answer any hard questions you've got that pretty much put my mind at ease moving forward with the interview Uh, and I thought you know what let's do the interview and let's see what we can get out of this interview let's see what information Bridget comes up with but I'm going to ask some hard questions you might say to yourself well how did the interview go well I'm recording this interview about 20 minutes before I do the interview I don't know what she's going to say I don't know what her stance is going to be on some particular issue so unfortunately I won't be able to tell you but what I do hope is that you'll write to me You'll send me emails at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com and you'll let me know what you guys think uh, about this interview that I'm about to do because, like I said, I haven't done it yet, so I don't know what she's going to say. Let me know if you're happy with it. Let me know if you've got issues with things that she was saying. At least I'll give her respect for at least willing to answer some hard questions. A lot of politicians would have backed away because they don't really like being 
asked the hard questions. And I've been doing this for 10 years. And like I said, I've not seen one single change to the NFA. So one of the questions I'm going to ask coming up is where can you succeed where others have continually failed to get good, honest, sensible gun laws to be removed, such as appearance laws? Why don't we have suppressors, not even duck hunting shotguns, such as pump shotguns up to five shot? We can already have straight pulls. We can already have lever actions. What's the issue here and how do we overcome it? So I just wanted to explain that to everyone to give you a bit of an idea how I came to that. I was not expecting an email at all from Bridget's office actually wanting to do with interview with me. But I appreciate they recognize that I have such a, I guess, a bit of a pull in the community that a lot of people do listen to this show. A lot of people enjoy this show. And I think they'll want the hard questions answered and they'll want to know about what Bridget's got coming up and moving forward on gun ownership in Australia, what she's been doing, what she plans to do, if anything. And I'm going to ask some hard questions. So I hope you're going to enjoy this show. I hope you get something out of it. Um, if you want to send us a voicemail, go on that website, australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. You can leave me a voicemail on the right-hand side. Uh, I'm also considering doing a monthly mailbag type show coming up soon as well because I get a lot of questions. It does take up a little bit of time during straight shooting when we first do straight shooting. I think the first hour of our last show or the show before that um, was really taken up a lot of questions and answers. And I think maybe adding an extra show uh, per month might actually be good in answering some questions. And if I don't know the questions or the answers, I should say, uh, then what I will do is even if I can get someone on for five minutes to answer your question quickly while I do the mailbag, might go for 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 50 minutes. I'm not sure. It just depends on the questions. Uh, that I get asked. Uh, if you could leave me a comment on iTunes, that'd be absolutely fantastic. Of course, we are on all the apps such as uh, Stitcher. We're on the website. We're on iTunes. Also, the Podbean app, if you want to listen to the show, which hosts my podcast. Uh, you can find me uh, any all those social medias, Instagram, Facebook. I don't really use Twitter too much because uh, I'm not really keen on Twitter. I think it's a bit of a cesspool. So I, <laughs> I only post the show on there. I don't really post much other than that. So I think we probably should uh, get into the show. I'm probably going to pause it in a few minutes because I've got about 15 minutes before the show. Um, get my head around the situation, get my questions ready and see how we go. So I hope you enjoy the show. So let's get into our interview with Bridget McKenzie. Bridget McKenzie, welcome to AHP. Thanks for coming on the show. We interviewed, I interviewed you in 2015 and 2016. As they say, you know, we, as we get older, we're supposed to get wiser. I'm older, but I'm not sure that I'm any wiser. So welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Oh, great to be with you, Jason. It's been a long time before between drinks, so uh, looking forward to a great chat tonight. Thank you. Um, so I guess so. we last spoke in 2016 and 2015. What's been happening in the last four years? Just give us a bit of a rundown about everything you've been up to. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Well, uh, not getting out on the range or out hunting as much as I would like. Uh, been pretty busy. I was afforded the opportunity to uh, get into the ministry uh, with the federal government and become deputy leader of the National Party. So that's kept me pretty busy over the last few years since we spoke and uh, was able to be sports minister and obviously Australia's first female agriculture minister. So been out and about in rural and regional communities. Uh, it's been a great privilege. Uh, still the senator for Victoria and um, I've got a bit more time on my hands, shall we say, at the moment. So uh, I've been getting back out on the range and I'm looking forward to going deer hunting on the weekend. So a bit more free time allows me to do the things I enjoy doing. When it comes down to what you're doing with your local constituency compared to being in the ministry, how's it different and how does it differentiate from your local work that you do? Yeah, Jason, I think that's a really cool question. Um, you know, 
when you're a National Party senator, you're very grounded in your local community. You're out and about listening to people all the time, particularly farmers, uh, small business owners out in rural and regional communities. When you're a minister, you're probably taking a more national perspective. You're, you know, for instance, when I was um, sports minister, I was sitting in on international conversations around anti-doping uh, regimes that heading into the Olympics when I was the agriculture minister, having to head over to Rome to have discussions around trade and um, tariff regimes that affect our farmers. So, it's it's the same type of work, i.e. you're representing an interest, but when you're a minister, you're representing Australia's interest, often on the international stage, and you're having to take a much more global perspective of, you know, Australia, whereas uh, as a senator for Victoria, I'm very loud and proud about what's in the best interest of our great state and pursuing that in, in Canberra and in the Senate. I've also... Uh, obviously uh, kept my role as leader of the National Party in the Senate. I lead a really tight, strong team of National Party senators from across Australia. And we, you know, stand up regularly in the Senate for our constituencies. Uh, recently, obviously, we've taken on the live cattle uh, appeal, which has been an issue following a, a decision from the Labor Party back in 2011 to ban the live cattle export trade overnight. Uh, really affected our trade relationship with Indonesia, but also saw our cattlemen and, and the supply chain uh, without a market and absolutely devastated economically and socially. Uh, and, and it took many, many years for them to recover. So, you know, it, it's never dull. It's a great privilege. And um, I really enjoy what I do. I'll get to the deer hunting in a minute, something you brought up there too about live exports now. Yeah. I'm sure our friends, the Greens, are very much against uh, <laughs> live exports. So where are we at with that? What are the hurdles? Just everything yeah. to do with live export. Look, Jason, I mean, you know, I hear it every day in the chamber of the Senate, you know, these hypocritical Greens, their outrageous claims about what farmers do and don't think about animal welfare outcomes. I mean, one of the great things to recognise and realise with our live animal export trade, whether it be cattle or, or indeed sheep, which is predominantly out of WA, is that we don't just export uh, clean, green Australian product and protein to the Middle East or Indonesia or wherever they're going. We're also exporting world-class animal welfare standards to these countries. I mean, we need to be very proud of the fact that as a nation, uh, we have the highest of animal welfare standards. Uh, and that's something to be proud of instead of continually denigrating the live animal export trade as the Greens do. Uh, you know, they take every opportunity to call out Australian farmers as if they uh, somehow abuse their animals at will. And it's just simply not true. It's offensive. Uh, and, you know, it, it really gets on my goat and I think is um, why we need to be really loud and proud about who we are, where we come from and, and what we do out in regional Australia. Because otherwise, and we've seen it happen in the marches through climate change. No one's talking about climate change at the moment, are they? Um, but, <laughs> you know, the Greens have such an unrealistic view of the human condition and how a society and a community and families should run. Um, I think we've really got to be wary of their gaining influence in our political system, not just in the federal Senate, uh, but in our state parliaments and our local councils as well. They want to shut down the forestry industry. They want to stop us farming. 
Um, they're backing animal activists to raid farmers' private properties. I mean, that's what they're doing. And we all know that they brought on that Senate inquiry to really look at banning handguns um, in Australia a yep. few years ago. Uh, so they're not our friends. Uh, and I'd back uh, somebody that's, you know, attending a wetland uh, as a conservationist and a law-abiding firearm owner, maybe someone out of field and game and the like, uh, over a green anyway, because that's the practical environmentalism we need, not the type of, you know, re religious intent that the Greens bring to any public discussion about land management or hunting or shooting. Now, there's a lot of, this is probably going to be uh, funny, but you're probably going to plead the fifth on this one, but I'm surprised how, you know, South Australians can honestly in their heart of ha hearts vote in someone like Sarah Hanson-Young into the Senate. The things she mm -hmm. says, I've seen what David Lionel had to go through mm -hmm. uh, during his time in the, in, in the Senate, and she, you know, she's happy to throw out insults and all these types of things that she says to people. Then, you know, the little pigtails come out, and, oh, I'm innocent, and I didn't do anything wrong. Like a... Congratulations for having to deal with her on a regular basis. Well, you know, I think the Greens en masse are just offensive to everything I believe in and uh, have been elected to fight for. Um, their unrealistic perspective, their denigration of our farming communities, of hard-working Australians, of our miners, the way they treat our mining community is absolutely reprehensible. Uh, this country would be finished economically if we weren't exporting uh, our mining product to the ports and markets of the world. And yet, so they're very, very happy to sit in their very comfortable uh, inner city um, lifestyle properties um, whilst allowing others to go out and earn, do the hard work and earn the real money that keeps our country ticking. Um, so, yeah, we have to put up with it. It's uh, annoying. It's part of living in a, in a liberal democracy, which you wouldn't want to change for the world. Uh, but it's why we do what we do and fight as hard as we do so that they don't gain an extra inch uh, in the political system. Because we've just seen how over time um, their influence has been able to really eke away at people's rights, at people's um, you know, responsibilities. There's a, a lack of responsibility now out in our community uh, for the individual. And that's because particularly the Greens and, and those left-wing types are just continually saying, you're not responsible. It's always someone else's fault. Well, it's not. It's our fault. Uh, we need to take responsibility for our actions. And that's sort of, I think, a good thing to teach our children. The Greens, on the other hand, uh, think it's always somebody else's response and and someone else is responsible for why uh, negative things occur in a community. Uh, what, what the Greens are advocating, just take the Murray-Darling Basin, for instance. What the Greens are wanting to see is communities like I visited today, Kyabram, Shepparton, uh, Yarrawonga, Mildura, completely shut down and denuded of all agricultural output. Tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs because to those of us that live in the Murray-Darling Basin, water is life, water is wealth. It, um, of course, we want a sustainable river system uh, and we want good environmental outcomes, but not at the expense of people and their businesses and their families and their communities. Uh, the Greens, I think, just want to shut everything down uh, so that people in Adelaide can feel good about themselves, people in Melbourne can feel good about themselves and Sydney. Uh, it's just not right and, and that's why we fight as hard as we do in the national.
You said you were going deer hunting, so we'll talk a bit about that. Is there any targeted um, species you're going to be going after on this magnificent hunt you're going to be going on? Yeah, I'm really excited. It's been a while since I've got out, um, thanks to COVID, etc., and just my job. So heading out this um, weekend with friends uh, onto private property. Um, I'm just going to aim for a little fallow, so I've got something to put in the freezer. And I did try um, – have you done, like, venison carpaccio? No, but I just spent a couple of days on the weekend making about 40 kilos worth of Samba sausages, so I just need a new mincer though. This one I had my my mate's wife's kitchen, and I had one, but she wanted to use it, and I said, this is just not cutting it. We need some power here. We need some horsepower. (laughs) Yeah, you need to up the ante, but well, uh, um, over Christmas, I took um, venison carpaccio for um, Christmas dinner, and Everybody just loved it. The recipe was actually in the ADA's magazine. So I thoroughly recommend um, that with like a porcini mushroom sort of um, pate that you can make as well with it. Um, Really yummy on on crispy bread with some um, fresh basil. Um, So, yeah, hopefully the minimum is a little fallow, but obviously we're always keeping our eye out for a samba and I'm, I'm yet to bag one of those. So... Yeah. We always live in hope. You brought up something very, very interesting before um, about the MDB, uh, Murray-Darling mm. Basin, the management of it. A lot of people, there's been a lot of, and this yeah. just brought up just now, a lot of protests, especially about David Littleproud's management of the MDB. Uh, I don't mm. pretend to know a lot about it. I run a gun and hunting show. I don't you know, have too much idea about water and water rights. That's for other people to do podcasts on. But yep. what can we do to get farmers water? I deal with farmers, especially down the Riverina, places like Hay, Moolamine, uh, or Abaram, where they're growing rice and they can't get water, water's too expensive. Um, this is a major problem for farmers in those areas, which I deal with on a, on a regular basis, even from here in Sydney when I call them up. Massive yep. amounts of problems being able to get access to water, often water flowing right past their properties and flows out into South Australia, out you know, basically into the ocean is what I'm hearing. Is that correct? And how can we make sure our farmers are sustaining for the future? Yeah, Jason, you know, you raise a, an excellent point. And for my entire time in the Senate, um, the Murray-Darling Basin plan, uh, I, I arrived in the Senate just as a, the Labor Party was implementing this this policy. Um, and, you know, it's it's really had quite negative outcomes in the communities I represent and the communities you're talking about, uh, our rice and cotton growing communities in New South Wales, uh, right through the Southern Basin, my table grape growers and my dairy farmers here in Victoria. Um, You know, the environment, obviously, as I said earlier, it is important to have a sustainable river system. It is important for the environment to be in balance with um, human and agricultural needs. When the environment is preferenced over people and their ability to have a livelihood, then something's out of kilter. And I think uh, as the Basin Plan's been implemented over the years, we have seen really perverse outcomes. Uh, We've seen communities subject to severe socioeconomic stress. Uh, That's now in a report that's been handed to the Federal Water Minister. And I hope he does something about this. We cannot see any more water come out of these communities just to satisfy the likes of Sarah Hanson Young in Adelaide. Uh, The reality is our people in the Murray-Darling Basin need to be able to still grow cotton, grow rice, uh, produce milk, uh, grow wine. And we as a national party today were actually uh, on the banks of the Goulburn River uh, just out of Shepparton 
making it very clear that as Victorian nationals, both state and federal MPs, that we have very strong views on this. We don't think we should be taking any more water from basin communities. We think states like New South Wales and South Australia need to instigate a moratorium on any uh, more development downstream of the Barmer Choke. And what that means, if, it, if you're not au fait with water policy, means at the moment uh, in areas like Mildura um, and sort of Swan Hill, etc., there's this rampant um, plantation of a whole raft of crops, including almond trees and the like, which are very, very thirsty. And what they're doing, unchecked, uh, is actually increasing uh, the price of water and the demand for water, for instance. And they're also making it very, very difficult for existing water entitlement holders in those communities uh, to ensure the deliverability of the water through things like the Barmer Choke, which is a natural constraint. Now, Victoria, as a government, has said, right, until we understand the impact of these developments on the river and our capacity to deliver water to existing entitlement holders, uh, we're going to put a moratorium on these sort of developments and we're just going to press pause and, and really check it out. Unfortunately, what that's meant is these guys have just jumped the river and are doing the same thing, but in New South Wales or to the west, they've jumped the border and, and they're doing the same things as South Australia, which means the stress on the river is still the same. Now, so New South Wales and South Australian governments uh, both Liberal national governments could tomorrow make a decision to put a moratorium on these sort of developments, check out what impact it's having on existing irrigators and the ability to deliver the water before we put more stress and pressure on the system. So we want to see that as well. We want to see the Murray-Darling Basin Authority split up. Right now, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is marking its own homework. It's charged with rolling out the plan and it's also charged with checking the plan's going okay. <laughs> and that just is bad for business in anyone's language. The Productivity Commission said in a report that um, it should be split up. We absolutely 100% agree. And I think we also need to look at um, foreign investment. You know, there was a report ha handed down. I'm happy uh, if your listeners want to contact my office in Wodonga, I'm happy to send you a copy but looking at the register of water entitlements in the Murray-Darling Basin. And what it's found is over 10% of the water entitlements are held by foreign entities, uh, and the largest of which is China. So we need to really be looking at water trading more broadly and how we can keep a better eye on who's holding what and making sure that more water gets to be used for agriculture in our regional communities. That's the sort of things I'm fighting for. Absolutely. Just got to go a quick break, guys, and we'll be right back. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit osaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. Okay, Bridget, I want to talk about, uh, have you been doing any shooting? Obviously, you just come out of the ministry as well, so have you been, other than hunting, which you're going on this week, uh, are you doing yeah, any more shooting? 
Yeah, well, I, um, I'm, as you, your listeners probably know, I, I like my shotgun best of all. Um, that's probably all I've really done um, in recent times. But I did have a quite a significant birthday with a five in, in front of it, Jason, recently. And so I bought <laughs> myself a bit of a present, um, a Kimber 308. And so with a love, it's lovely timber, it's beautiful. But it's 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 the virgin. It hasn't actually done what it was bought for yet. So I took it out to my local SSAA range here in Wodonga a couple of weeks ago, um, looked at the 50, looked at the 100. Um, so I've got a bit of work to do or, or I need another set of um, glasses. Uh, so I think she's ready to roll. So we'll see how she goes on the weekend. Um, but other than that, I haven't got to do uh, much shotgunning yet, but I have introduced myself to my local field and game club and my SSAA club. Um, so I'm looking forward to, you know, really making some more time to get back into community activities. You won't want to take it out with that if it's got a nice piece of wood on it. You don't want to get a damage hitting it on a tree or you know, on a fence post well, that, or something. Don't you reckon that sort of tells the story of, you know, the adventures you've had? I'm a bit of a safe queen sometimes when it comes to some of the guns and, you know, that's why I buy them with uh, polymer stocks and stuff like that. So at least if you scratch it, it's not too bad. Nothing worse than when you've got a nice piece of wood and, yeah. you know, if it's got a story behind it, sure, but then, when, you know, when you've gone to the range and you've whacked it on a concrete bench or something, you go, that's <laughs> not, not really a good story. memory to make. So I wanted to talk about the – you created the website, which was part of the email uh, that I got from you guys about aussielafos.com. I mean, what's, yes. the, what's the purpose yes. of the website? Just give us a bit of info. Yeah, sure. So it's www.aussielafo.com and it's really um, a specific website for um, law-abiding firearm owners to connect with me and the work that I've been doing in this space for a long period of time as a senator. As you'd know, I've set up the Parliamentary Friends of Shooters, which was really an effort to bring together at Federal Parliament a coalition of shooters and hunters people that want to support our sport and are happy to be public about that. Um, too often, I think, over the last 20-odd years, uh, we've been silent. Um, we've been worried about being shamed or judged. And so um, we need people in leadership positions who are supportive of our sport to stand up and say so. Um, so setting up the Parliamentary Friends of Shooters has brought Labor, Liberal, Independents, a lot of nationals together uh, across a lot of disciplines, but we've also held an annual Christmas shoot with the Press Gallery in Canberra. And part of my wanting to do that was actually to demystify hunting and shooting to the Press Gallery. And, you know, every single year um, we'll have new young journos come out and um, we'll always have an Olympian to actually coach us. Um, we have a fabulous meal afterwards back at the clubhouse and and it's everyone that's experienced and new entrants and the number of young journos that turn around after they shoot their first clay just like oh wow this is fantastic it's like yes it is um and it's so safe yes it is and we're not crazy um we're all just quite <laughs> regular human beings so it's been and now it's sort of one of the things that the journos love to have in their calendar they love to come back um so it's been a real journey over the years with the Parliamentary Friends of Shooters. So what I realised during the COVID um, experience, when I'm writing to premiers about them shutting down legal 
legally operating retailers, being our firearm industry, and using the COVID-19 as an excuse to do that. Um, I realise that we really do need um, to connect better um, with what I'm doing and what we're all doing. So um, I've set up the website, uh, which is a way that if you want to know where I'm fighting on what particular issue in Parliament or to feed in issues that you want me to stand up for in the Senate, um, that's what the, the website is about. So it's www.aussielafo.com um, and I'm really excited about the way it's going to help me connect better with um, law-abiding firearm owners and I guess... I do a lot of work that isn't necessarily in the Senate. It's about really things like writing to um, Aussie Post, for instance, you know, in WA when they were refusing to carry firearms. And given how um, farmers out in those more remote communities in WA were ordering online and couldn't get it actually delivered to their uh, licensed post office, I was able to really intercede there um, with the CEO and the board and actually get that fixed or, you know, standing up against the bank discrimination that we saw um, last year and continuing. We saw it last year with the Bank of Queensland, writing to the CEO saying, come on, mate, this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, so a whole lot of other things that I do outside of the Senate. I wanted to, we'll go into the COVID stuff a bit later because I think I've got mm. some stuff to bring up there. But I mean, I know yeah. this is a state issue, but being a senator for Victoria, you're probably around this a lot. I mean, Duck hunting, you know, I know Daniel Andrews probably a couple of years, I mean, three, four years ago when he was uh, first well, about to win, you know, the premiership in, in Victoria said they wouldn't be, I think one of the protesters got up at one of the PR meets and said, oh, what are you going to do about duck hunting? And he said, you know, we support duck hunting. I mean, we've seen this year and only the people that I speak to that know the numbers are saying, mate, the amount of water we've had is, is fantastic for our farmers across the across the state of Victoria and New South Wales. Getting a lot of uh, you know water up here as well, but you know every year again they've put restrictions on how many birds we can take. They Correct. didn't extend the season during the the COVID. I mean, yeah. I've got numbers here of around. I think I'm correct, but I had the screenshot, but I can't find it. About four hundred and twenty-five million dollars, roughly, uh, poured into the local communities, whether it's four-wheel drives, whether it's fishing, uh, mm. whether it's duck hunting, sale, all these areas in. Victoria that rely on these people, people like Laurie Levy, they're out on the wetlands harassing shooters. Then, you know, if a shooter happens to say something to them in a, in, in a bit of upset, then, you know, they're the victim. I mean, it's ridiculous. But we just want to go about our business to go duck shooting, to have a good bag based on science of how many birds there are. I mean, it just seems, again, for the first time in a long time, I've, I think duck hunting really is under threat from the Labor government. And, yeah. and it's going to be sad if this gets banned again because. It's just going to do... Why are we in this country of banning everything? It's just getting ridiculous now. Yeah, Jason, you, you know, 100% couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I couldn't get out this season uh, because there's only sort of two weeks left that here in Victoria we could sort of get out uh, while season was still on. Bag limits of three. Who's going to travel five hours to go hunting for three? Um, and therefore, like you said, spend in the local communities, go to the pub after the shoot, um, buy your petrol, buy your supplies, and, and you're dead right. It's over over $430 million to just regional Victoria alone, plus thousands of jobs on a duck hunting season. So I think um, it's a real missed opportunity for Daniel Andrews' Labor government. I think they could have showed much more flexibility. We've had a great um, start to 2020 with rain. 
wetlands are looking great. Um, you're right about the science. We must always use the science in determining what the bag limits are going to be. But given COVID, why he couldn't just extend um, the season, I've got no idea. Um, there doesn't seem to be much science behind that at all. Uh, and having a bag limit of three, really, hunters are going to start asking themselves, why am I going to drive to East Gippsland or, or up into the Mallee to do this um, just for, for three ducks? It's just not going to be worth my while. And that's going to be detrimental to the regional communities that usually welcome them with open arms. And it's also going to be detrimental for the next generation of duck hunters because they're not going to jump in the ute with mum and dad and, and um, family friends and head out for what's become quite a uh, welcomed and cultural experience for them as they grow up in, in a family that, that are hunters. Yeah, and, you know, this is a side issue, but a lot of people know that listen to my show. I was I literally got to Malakuda at Christmas time the day day after, so the day before, I should say, the fires actually took yeah. hold across the East Gippsland. And, you know, we, we were locked in, in Malakuda for almost four weeks. Luckily, my friends got a house down there, so we were relatively okay. Yeah. But when you see the Andrews government sending in beer, and we're like, we don't need beer, sir. We need water. Sorry, we need fuel. We need fuel. That's Everyone's right. running on generators. We don't need, like, sending in beer. Are you trying to relate to me? Are you trying to, we don't need <laughs> beer. That's fine. I'm not really a big drinker at all. I don't hardly drink at all, but. I said, mate, we need fuel. People have got food. People have got you know, shops. They need fuel. Like You've got to get it here only to have, what's that mining fellow? Twiggy, I think his name is. I don't know his official name, but he's in town doing interviews. We're in meetings saying, mate, if you guys need anything, I'll fly a chopper in and out That's to help right. you guys. You know what That's I mean? Right. Yeah, and pe- yeah, you're dead right, Jason. So over summer, I was um, still agriculture minister and was going through, say, southeast coast of New South Wales, through Cabago, et cetera, um, up into Talanga. Koryong, Kajiwa, over into South Australia and, and you know, just was watching uh, Malakuta in particular over time and people were needing really practical support. You know, their, their telecommunications was out. Um, they couldn't have, a, they didn't have generators to run um, their fridges and their freezers. Small yep. businesses were losing stock hand over fist, let alone not having anyone there to buy it. I, I mean, it just really shows you the calibre of the man that he thinks a case of beer is actually what regional Australians in going through that really difficult period were needing. No, they didn't. They needed, as you said, really practical support to help them through, uh, which was an incredibly difficult time, often for weeks and weeks and weeks past the fire actually disappearing because, remember, it was really difficult to get the roads cleared. You know, uh, we couldn't... We had to get the army in, basically, to clear the road so that you could get supply trucks in and out um, of all of these communities. So um, it was a really difficult summer, and and our hunting seasons are a great way for Melbournians or Sydney-siders, capital city residents, to head out into regional areas, spend up big with our local small businesses who sort of had that triple whammy in the last couple of years of drought, uh, then the bushfires and then COVID. So um, any support your listeners can give to regional communities, I know they'll be welcomed with open arms. Now, you would 
put up a good one talking about the the gun shops. They were obviously really mm. hit hard. I did a lot of interviews, probably about four or five gun shop owners. Some of them saying, you know, if this goes on longer than three weeks, I'm probably going to be out of business. Yep. I mean, as you know, you've just purchased a rifle. I'm not sure which time it was, but, you know, prices obviously mm. went up by around, you know, 15 to 25%. The Aussie dollar completely went down the toilet. So shooters were out there saying, well, if prices are going to go up, I'm going to go out there and purchase, you know, mm. ammunition. I'm going to purchase, you know, reloading equipment, firearms, uh, only to have the police minister, Lisa Neville, stand up on a podium right. and tell me and tell shooters of Victoria that we don't want the uh, guns to get into the hands of criminals. So I'm like, That's well, right. if you've got, if you've, you know, I know Labor support, you know, the Howard gun reform. So if you've got this fantastic firearms laws in registration, in licensing, uh, which as we know, we've spoken previously, I don't agree with, how mm. on earth can uh, licensed firearms that are being sold to licensed people get into the hands of criminals. I mean, what a disingenuous statement to make. I, I was really, really shocked and appalled um, by Lisa Neville's comments. I wrote to Daniel Andrews um, straight away on that and I asked um, him, you know, how can he actually, when you're saying that these decisions are going to be made on health grounds about which area of our economy or communities are going to be restricted and which aren't, uh, where is the health advice? Because I know there isn't any health advice. Um, and then for her to then say that the new laws were introduced um, from National Cabinet was an absolute crock because there were three state governments that initiated these bans. One was the Labor government in WA, one was the Palaszczuk government in Queensland and one was our very own um, comrade Dan here in Victoria. Uh, it was absolutely appalling, opportunistic decision by state Labor governments to use this as a way to shut down uh, legitimate law-abiding businesses uh, at a really, really negative time. Um, and yes, some of them then wound that back and, you know, gave exemptions to farmers, etc., etc. But it's just not good enough. I mean, and, and what was the argument they were going to be given? That we were somehow, um, I think it was even worse than your state, Jason, I thought that she intimated in that press conference that law-abiding firearm owners were more likely to harm family members. That's yep. what she actually... Remember disgusting. that? Yep, disgusting. It was absolutely disgusting. abhorrent. Um, we work very, very hard to maintain our good reputation because we know if you don't, someone will come and take our guns away and we won't be able to do the sport we love. Um, and I, I just think it was... Absolutely abhorrent. Um, I raised it with the Prime Minister. I've written to the Premier, um, still yet to get an adequate response from him. I mean, if you're looking at what what causes more deaths in this country and what, you know, um, is it the cigarettes sold at our major supermarkets that kill more Australians or is it firearms owned uh, and housed by law-abiding firearm owners? Well, I know which one causes more damage and more harm and kills more Australians. And nobody shut the cigarette shops and nobody shut uh, Woolworths and Coles down. So it was complete hypocrisy and just being very opportunistic, I believe, uh, by state Labor governments. I want to follow up on that on just a bit more, but we'll just go to a quick break, guys. We'll be right back. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. 
Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision. From the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. Bridget, going on a bit from that about the mm. now the COVID restrictions. Listen, this could be the death blow for our shops. And I'm in New South Wales and I'm normally not praising of you know, police and, and the government in this situation, mm. but at least they had the the backbone not to, you know, close our gun shops, to leave it open, and mm. I've got to give them credit for that. Now, I'm not going to go into the side issue of what Daniel Andrews just did the other day. Now, he's saying, which just beggars belief that you can have a 1,000 protests or two, 3,000 mm. protesters, whatever it was in the city the other day, uh, Presser came out saying basically we're going to have to go into you know, more lockdowns. I'm not sure where they are at that as of today, but this could be a death blow to gun shops. So how can you find a person sitting on a park bench uh, eating a kebab? I know that's not Victoria. That happened up here in New South Wales, but <laughs> there'd be certain similar situations oh, that are. happened in Absolutely. Victoria as well. Whilst you know you're politically not say necessarily politically aligned with some of these people, but you have thousands in the people in the city that don't even know each other. Most likely, mm. there might be a few friends. But generally, these people are arm in arm, then has the hide to say on a presser that, no, it's family to family transmission and we need to start looking at further restrictions down the track. Now, this could be the end of gun shops for good in a lot of these places, including in Melbourne, including uh, in regional parts of Victoria. Uh, This guy cannot be serious, please. Yeah, look, it beggars belief, doesn't it, that you can allow tens of thousands of people protesting um, in your main capital city, no recriminations, no, uh, you know, arrests, no fines at all, um, and marching against, you know, something that is an international issue. It's some, a, a, an issue that's occurring in another country. We all know our incarceration rates of Aboriginals are too high, uh, but the base cause is not systemic racism. The base cause is the things that the Royal Commission highlighted in 1991 you know, uh, substance abuse, family breakdown, lack of employment, etc. They're the things we have to address uh, and to somehow try and import uh, an issue from the US here to Australia, I think is absolutely ridiculous. And then for the state government uh, to not actually hold those protesters to account. And now we're dealing with a spike here in Victoria to blame uh, Victorian families. I mean, you can't say listen to the medical advice and then ignore the medical advice. We all should be, um, you know, heeding the medical advice. We should all be practising social distancing uh, when we are with our family and friends at family gatherings and when we're out and about at work, etc. I mean, over this period of lockdown, people have had to bury parents without being able to attend funerals. People have put off their wedding. People have not yep. seen... You know, you can talk about the heartache that people have had to go through uh, to do the right thing, and we've done a great job as a country. We've flattened that curve. We are the envy of the world right now. Uh, But, you know, people, you know, want to show they care. Well, you know what? In this COVID-safe environment, you need to find um, creative ways to exercise your right to free speech and not put people's lives at danger uh, as they did in the protests in Melbourne over the last couple of weeks. Exactly. I want to get this one out of the way now because I thought it was interesting so we can go on to bigger and better topics. So obviously there's a big issue about the the sports grants um, that you're in control of. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I found you to be a very good speaker, independent woman, smart, knows what she's talking about. Um, you know, as we know in politics these days, pretty much it's become so, and I quite like Donald Trump. I think he's done fantastic in some areas and not so good in other areas, but I think he's a really, really good president. We're seeing the left and right pretty much at each other's throats. So pretty much half the country, Labor Greens, don't really like the Liberal National Party uh, and the Liberal National Party, probably not big fans of the of the Labor and Greens coalition. So this was a hot topic. This was all through the news. Everyone was hearing about it. Um, the only thing people concentrated on was that you're a shooter, that mm. you gave money to a gun club for which you didn't declare that conflict of interest. Obviously, I've read the report. While there was no illegal wrongdoing, and I don't believe you did anything wrong, you must have understood that was probably not the right thing to do. And to be honest, I've got to say, it was such a hot topic throughout the that period. I'm sure you know all too well about the issue um, that it kind of did you know, put you to all the hard work that you did potentially may have been undone for not disclosing that conflict of interest and did somewhat bring you know, the shooting sports into disrepute. Oh uh, yeah, look, Jason, I don't, I don't probably agree with your assessment of that. Um, you know, I'm a proud hunter and shooter. There's a lot of file footage of me with a firearm in my hand um, and the media, you know, used that uh, whilst they were discussing the sports grant issue. The reality of uh, that there was no wrongdoing and even the ANAO report into sports grants recognised that, that no rules were broken. I mean, I was sports minister and wrote the national sports plan that wanted more Australians to get out there and get active, supporting our local clubs and our volunteers and that included shooting clubs. That means they're spending less time at sausage sizzles and and more time out at the range or on the traps. And, you know, over the course of the three rounds of that funding, we had 684 clubs receive funding uh, and they're all eligible. And it's a good thing that that also included shooting clubs. I know the media uh, like to show a lot of pictures of me shooting. Um, I hope that promoted our sport um, rather than meant we had negative connotations. But, you know, I'm proud that I was able to support so many local clubs. The reality is it was about getting money into our grassroots sporting club. And as a result of the decisions I made as ministers, um, you know, we had more clubs out in country communities get funding than otherwise would have. And that's got to be a good thing. Um, You know, I've made a comprehensive submission to the Senate inquiry into sports grants, which is going on right now. It is available online, uh, or if your listeners would like a copy, they can feel free to contact my office in Wodonga and we'll make sure they get one. Now, I just want to ask you about the, if I can just quickly, about the, the membership. Now, this is a very, very key point. Someone told me, um, that doesn't, obviously doesn't know you at all, but they said potentially you may have got that membership uh, after or gifted that membership after you gave them the money, which would be a very, very key point. So mm-hmm. did they give you the membership after the funds were given to the club or was the membership gifted before the funds were given to the club? Well, the honorary membership was uh, given to me uh, after I'd made the decision into uh, club funding, but uh, prior to the announcement. Uh, so I guess the issue uh, of me having to resign was that I failed to declare those to the Prime Minister in a timely way. I did declare them, um, but not in the time frame specified in the ministerial standards. So the take-home from all of this, Jason, though, is that at the Wangaratta Gun Club, we had an open sewer that was basically where 
female shooters and disabled shooters were, you know, supposed to go to the toilet. They couldn't do that, so they had to hike it down the road to the local pub uh, to use the facilities there. That just obviously wasn't acceptable. So I'm really proud to be part of a government and the minister responsible uh, for making that funding decision because that's ultimately going to mean that that gun club is much more accessible, particularly to women and disabled shooters. What would you do differently? What What do you think you'd do differently in regards to this situation? As you know, it was all over the media. Um, how would you treat this situation differently if you had to you had to do it again? Yeah, look, I think there's a few key facts. Uh, at the end of the day, Australians elect politicians to make decisions. We don't want to leave it to unaccountable bureaucrats to be deciding where taxpayer dollars go. And I'm confident there'd be a big public outcry if that was the case. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I think we need more law-abiding firearm owners elected to join me in supporting and backing uh, our shooters against often an ongoing and misinformed public debate. But in hindsight, you know, if I look at what I could have done better, uh, it's not around the decision-making at all. I stand by every one of those 684 uh, decisions to back sporting clubs across the country. But I would obviously uh, declare the honorary and paid memberships to the Prime Minister in, in the time frame that he expected. But I don't apologise for making this uh, program, this sporting grants program, fairer than it would have been. And I guess I just look forward to serving not just regional Victorians and Australians, but our hunting and shooting community in the Australian Senate for many more years to come. When we spoke, and this is an interesting topic, I guess it's very complex. We spoke in 2015 and 2016, mm. and you said the NFA and any changes to gun laws needed to be about science and facts, if I've got that correct. Mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, four years later, um, I guess, like I said, I'm on the, early in the show, I'm older, wiser, perhaps a little bit fatter as well. Um, <laughs> and you know what? We're no further advanced. As of 2020, there's been no changes to the National Firearms Agreement under any party, whether it's Liberal Nationals, Labor, Shooters and Fishers, Liberal Democrats, One Nation, doesn't matter which party. I mean, it just seems to, uh, to see that you know, facts, unfortunately, and science aren't enough. And I went back again. This is probably after, I think it was after we did the interview, 21st of October 2016. This was double SAA Victoria. And you mm -hmm. said, I strongly back more than 800,000 responsible licensed gun owners in this country. Uh, and I also support the National Firearms Agreement, which has worked for 20 years since the tragedy of Port Arthur, she said. The only reason the ban was imposed, this is obviously talking about the Adler at the time in the Senate, was because the states and territories who must agree on the appropriate classification of firearms under the NFA uh, couldn't be reached. But, I mean, if our goal is to stop crime, if our goal is to uh, not have public shootings, um, as you know, the Lockhart murders down in Wagga Wagga, we just had mm. the Margaret River murders uh, probably within the last 12, 18 months ago. We had the Darwin shootings just uh, probably within the last six or seven, eight months ago, uh, five or six people shot with a pump shotgun. So when the science and the facts just aren't enough, what on earth can we do? Where can you deliver where others, and I don't want to say failed, but I have to put it that way. I've been doing this 10 years and not mm. one person Okay, we talk about club grants and stuff like that. My listeners want to talk about a legislative level. When are we actually going to achieve results if science, facts, and trying to get the public over the line is just not enough? Look, Jason, you know, this is the classic um, question for politics. It's the art of the possible. It's the art of the possible. And I'm a realist and a pragmatist. Um, I look around state governments, and you look, we've had a classic 
case just with the COVID-19 that we just talked about before. Um, state governments want to shut things down further, let alone open things up. And that's that's the political environment we're actually in. So, you know, arguing about whether the NFA should be here or not really distracts us, I think, um, from some positive changes we can make about debunking the myths about who we are as hunters and shooters, celebrating our contribution to the broader Australian cultural life, our sporting achievements, our economic contribution, and really starting to pair away at that, what I believe in, in the broader Australian society, um, is, you know, a, a, a suspicion um, of firearm owners, a sort of a, a judgmental attitude to firearm owners, that's where we need to be working at um, if we're wanting to see legislative change because if we just ignore creating a positive view of hunters and shooters in the community, then politicians of both major parties have no reason to change anything. That's, that's the reality of the situation we're in. And then conversely to that, like, so if you accept that, then what can we do um, as, you know, I am in a political party that gets to be the second party of government, right? The National yep. Party is not One Nation, is not the Greens, is not, um, you know, shooters and fishers. We get to actually sit around the ministry table and make decisions. And that's when you can change environmental laws. It's when you can support young people to get involved in this sport so we actually have Olympians in the future. It's when you can change um, regulations around how we register firearms and how we can make it easier, for instance, to travel around this country with your firearm uh, and participate in our sport. So that's sort of where I try and focus um, my attention so on real tangible outcomes that we can achieve. I mean, being able to do things like setting up the Firearms Advisory Council so that we've got actual advocacy groups like SSAA, like Field and Game, like ADA around the table at, at talking to ministers in, in federal and state governments. That's the sort of thing I can do as a National Party federal MP. It's the sort of thing that my state counterparts um, in National Party um, coalition governments can do as Peter Walsh did in Victoria when he set up the Game Management Authority. You know, that's how we can sort of change things and make things better for our, our LAFO community rather than, um, you know, yes, would we like to see change at the NFA? If you tried to change the NFA right now, I can tell you where the weight of political opinion would end up and we'd end up with a worse result than what we're living with right now. So that's probably where I choose to focus. Is on, I'm looking yeah. at just like some of the things I'm looking at here. I mean, just... It's gotten worse even just over the last week. I mean, we've still got, as you know, there's no uniformity amongst the states. Yeah. And some people say yeah. that could be good, that could be bad, because if they take WA, for an example, I mean, we've still got appearance yeah. laws. And I've just yep. I've just got an article here just from the National Shooting Council and saying, so this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Again, obviously, it's from the... the, the Labor government in WA, mm -hmm. so the Ruger PC Charger handgun, that's on the chopping block. Uh, they want to remove that to category C or D. The mm -hmm. Seymour Competition M26, the Precision Rifle Products Bullpup, the Precision DSR-1, the Tactical Arms SRS-A1, the Ruger SR-22, and the Franklin Armoury 
F-17. So this is seven guns, sorry, six guns, seven guns in one foul swoop, only to get another call from the next day to one of the importers from a friend saying WA also has on the chopping block the Berica EXT-12, which is a straight pull. So now not only do they not me not want me to have like my duck shooting guns, like my pumps mm. or my semi-autos, five shots, they're now going after, which you've seen during the Adler, my Category B firearms as well. So how long is it going to be before one of the major parties then starts going after my hunting rifles, which is just we're seeing a gradual – people say, like the Greens say, we're watering down gun laws. I see it as the complete opposite. It's the police, again, have way too much power and a keep on – wanting to reclassify firearms based on their appearance. Now, the only country that's done that recently would be Canada. Now, yeah. they won't even tell you what firearm in that shooting he used because we know it wasn't an AR-15. They're saying it's a pistol. Yet he's banning all these guns that were totally unrelated to the shooting. And nine of those people that were killed out of, what was it, 17, 18 or whatever it was, um, were killed by fire. So, again, mm -hmm. we, we, no other country except for Canada only just now, just recently, is banning firearms based on their appearance and not what they actually do. Yeah, look, Jason, again, a great point. Um, and I, I ha have to say, you know, this is, again, uh, Labor government in WA, the one who shut down the, the firearm dealers during COVID, is now actually trying to um, take, you know, reclassify firearms in a way that's not beneficial for, for firearm owners and users. And that is where uh, your listeners need to join their local advocacy groups, right? Um, we need to have powerful advocacy groups that actually have these conversations with governments, no matter what colour the government is. Um, and that's why groups like Parliamentary Friends of Shooters are so important in kind of unpicking that and getting the relationships going. Because we can jump up and down about this and say, no, no, no. But what's, what would be better would be if we could actually make these parliamentarians realise that it is not in their interest. And I get very angry at people who, and political parties who, and independents who say they vote and support um, hunters and shooters in this country and then they preference the Greens above others. They preference the Labor Party above others. Because if you want a preference for Labor Party, this is where you will end up. You will end up with a state government that wants to take your guns away. You'll end up with a state government who diminishes your duck hunting season, as we've seen here in Victoria. Or you'll end up with a, a state government that shuts your local um, firearm dealers uh, on um, some mythical uh, medical advice. I mean, that is where our, your listeners really need to be conscious when they're casting their vote, whether it's in the Senate or whether it's in state elections, um, about where the preference flows goes. Because you might love your shooters and hunters or you might love your One Nation or whoever it is, but if they're asking you to then give your vote to the Greens or to the Labor Party above the, nationals, uh, the National Party, I can bet you London to a brick you'll be electing a local MP and potentially a state government that is not in your interests. Yeah, you bring you bring up a good point. Um, but I've also got to say on the flip side too, you know, some of the, the, the National Firearms Agreement is a direct um, policy from John Howard, who in, at the time was in coalition, as far as I'm aware, with the, the National Party. Tim Fisher was very, very strong uh, on 
supporting the Howard gun reforms. Um, so I, I just want to play something. I thought this is a great question. I think you were on here. I was just searching it before I come up with the show. Um, just about something initially Tim uh, Fisher said at first. So this is a question from uh, Sporting Shooters Association. So this will be from Diana Mellum. She was the yep. former executive know, director Diane. of New South Wales. Yep. And what Tim Fisher has to say when Diane Mellum actually starts talking about facts. So it might go for a minute or so. I just want to play that. Let's move along. The next question, completely different subject, comes from Diana Mellum. Thank you, Tony. Um, references are typically made to John Howard's gun laws at the time of tragedy. And we saw gun laws become a topic for electioneering at the recent New South Wales by-elections. The government funded uh, buybacks in 1996 and 2003 cost $700 million. However, research shows these have had no effect in reducing the number of firearms deaths. During the recent amnesty, over 26,000 firearms were surrendered by law-abiding citizens, but it's highly unlikely that career criminals will hand in their illegal firearms during an amnesty. So what do panel members believe the federal and state governments can do to effectively address the issue of illegal firearms and their criminal use? Now, full disclosure, Diana, you are a lobbyist for guns and sporting organisations. Uh, um, no, uh, I'm, I'm employed by Sporting Shooters Association of, of Australia, New fair South enough. Wales branch. All right, fair enough. Uh, Tim Fisher. Look, uh, the statistics can be looked at as lies, damn lies and statistics, but uh, a fair take on those stats... I think would lead the average Australian to believe correctly there has been a reduction in gun deaths in this country since John Howe spearheaded the uh, firearms agreement between the federal government and the state governments since the legislation passed, since the buyback took place. Yes. Now, I'm just going to cut it off there because I don't want to play the whole thing, uh, Bridget, but, I mean, Tim Fisher was well aware um, long before 1996 the homicide rate was dropping. Um, we've seen that echoed from most Western countries around the world, Sweden, Switzerland, up until last year, New Zealand, up until a few uh, six months ago, Canada, um, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Germany. I mean, Germany has all these types of firearms and does not have the mass shootings that uh, uh, America uh, has at the moment. So again, even when provided not with statistics, but to say, well, it's either lies, lies or damn statistics, but knowing full well the homicide rate was dropping long before 1996. There was some young uh, a female, I think it was a guy from RMIT uh, University in Melbourne, did a, um, a write-up on this and did research and said, well, we don't really know uh, whether this has actually been successful or not. I've said many, many years that we never thought anything would happen in Australia again. But my point is criminals have all types of guns. Mm. If they simply want to go out and start doing something bad, which I hope they don't, they'll simply just go out and do that. Oh, you're dead right. Look, I thought Di made a really good point. Um, you know, and this is part of the problem that people associate criminal activity and homicides from criminal activity with the law-abiding firearm owner. And it's, it's, you know, we see it time and time again in commentary in the media, and that's why one of the relationships that I've tried so hard to build um, is with the media, so that they can actually see us for who we are, which we're not criminals. Um, we're just regular folk who, who love what we do, uh, and to really start to disassociate that assumption, I think, that had started to sort of creep into public conversations was that um, if you own a gun, you just want to kill things. Well, actually, no, that's not the way it is. Um, and so I think making sure criminals and criminal activity and those terrible tragedies that occur um, 
from criminal behaviour are called out for what they are and that it's actually recognised that it is the person pulling the trigger um, that is the problem, not the gun itself. And we all know that, uh, everyone listening to your your podcast. I think equally it's... it's um, much easier for criminals not to get their hands on uh, law-abiding firearm owners' guns if we don't release registry details accidentally. Um, you know, I think there's been an alarming propensity or a lackness, laxness, shall I say, um, of releasing this sort of data as if it doesn't really matter. Well, it really does because uh, it can be used for very um, negative outcomes in the wrong hands. Like I'm only, I'm only 39. I wasn't obviously a shooter back in 1996. I was only, you know, a young teenager going to school. But I mean, even if we look at uh, what happened in New Zealand, I know Jacinda Ardern's decided to make a stand on that. Um, finally, last week, you know, the, the New Zealand first, Ron, Mark and Winston Peters, again, uh, selling out the people that voted for them. You know, and they are going to put in a register, they say, within the next three years. But at least the National Party, um, they, they've decided on the second tranche of gun reform, even though they couldn't fight it, to, to get a backbone and say, well, at least listen, yeah, if you put these laws through, when we get into Parliament, if Jacinda Ardern's not elected in September, that we'll be reversing these decisions. They didn't ban the duck hunting firearms. They didn't ban the semi-automatic 22s. They didn't, they didn't ban those types of firearms. They only ban you know, the, the semi-automatic centrifires, if you will. Um, and, yeah, a lot of business is going to be affected over there as well, um, you know. I mean, so... yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Jason. I, and when I'm out and about, whether I'm talking to, you know, young up-and-coming athletes, I'm out in club land, um, I'm even out hunting, there are, and you, you bring up age, you know, I'm talking to young people who don't even, you know, they don't remember that period. They weren't they around. Yep. Yep. And potentially even their parents weren't yep. around. So I think for me um, it's about protecting what we have, making sure it doesn't get worse, and really trying to um, make sure the broader Australian community is much more accepting and understanding of our sport and our activity and that way, I think in a liberal democracy like ours, the more people we have understanding what we're doing, accepting that it's, you know, just like going to hockey or just watching the footy or netball, um, that that's when we can start to see change. The trouble is that takes a long time. There is one thing I'd like to see change legislative, though, and that, yep. that would be um, suppress the laws. Yep. I mean, we say... You know, with things we want to keep. And I hear this from gun owners all the time. They say, oh, well, but we've got to keep what we have. But that's the whole point. I've just, I've, I know it's a Labor government. It's not you. You're in the federal Senate. But I've just read off eight guns that have been literally yeah. banned. I mean, th this, this is the problem, you know. And I, I don't know how to move forward. So we've got to keep what we have. But now they're targeting Category they're B. They're taking, taking what you've got, yeah. what we've got. So uh, and this is where and I think sometimes um, people wonder what the use is of joining their local association. Right. Now, whether it's the deer hunters, whether it's SSAA, whether it's Field and Game, whether it's Shooters Union, whoever it is that takes your family, ACTA, whoever it is, um, their role in advocating for you politically is really important. So, yes, it is about supporting um, parliamentarians uh, who support, who are prepared to stand up and fight for us. Um, that's important, but it's also important to support those organisations that do the hard yards, 
um, lobbying um, parliamentarians when they're making these decisions. That is another part of the puzzle. Yep. And a lot of uh, people that listen to my show want the organisations to stand up mm-hmm. and, and they want them to advocate. And, you know, a lot of people listen to my show. So, like, people like the large organisations, like, which I know you're a part of, like double SAA, like they're, they're, they're doing the right thing on saying the right things. But when it comes to actually implementing some type of policy or how they're going to go about that, People, I get emails such as, well, why would the SSAA do anything when they get handouts from government for rangers? And I think that's a fair question. Oh, no, well, I, I, I see it happen. You know, we know we've got the Firearms Advisory Council, which has all these organisations on it that actually sits down with government along with the Dealers Association and, and the broader industry. So they all come together and um, make sure that government is the government ministers are very aware of what the issues are. Um, let me say one thing too. I noticed on that list as well, I was on, on that blog post from the NSC, the Seymour yeah. competition M26 too, we first found out about that. WA was the first. Actually, Victoria uh, sent a bunch of uh, letters out to shooters as well saying, mm-hmm. we plan on banning this firearm. So Victoria is doing it as well. It just came to my mind just then. So again, we're, we're seeing Victoria also um, wanting to ban these types of firearms as well. I just, I just don't know the way forward. Ten years I've been sitting in front of this yeah. microphone, frustrated, disappointed. Like I love my shooting sports. I've met some fantastic people doing this. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when I see the organisations, just they, we say they're standing up, but when it comes to usable, what is being – at the end of the day, all it comes down to is what legislation is being tabled onto the floor of parliament. And the answer is not, none. That's, that's the real answer. Well, then we, we, you know, the shooting sports are going through the roof, right? Where um, Best more and it's more ever people been. Are, are exactly right. So that means that more and more people out in our communities um, love what they do and I hope will be prepared to support parliamentarians or candidates who will stand up and support them, not back in state Labor governments. Now, I know that's annoying, that might be annoying to some listeners who, who support Labor, but the proof's in the pudding. The proof's in the pudding. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and part of my job is to grow the number of parliamentarians that support shooting through um, the work we do with the Parliamentary Friends of Shooters. So I often get a lot of new pollies, um, and they can be Labor, um, liberal, you know, whoever, um, come up and say, oh, Bridge, you know, I hear you've got this parliamentary friends are shooting. I've never tried it. Can I come along? And, and we're like, of course you can. We've got a really safe environment where you can try this out, um, fall in love with it, hopefully, but at least understand it better so that when these questions of banning guns or um, changing regulations here, there come to the parliament, they'll be much less likely to just accept on face value, um, the negative perceptions of the bureaucrats. They'll be much. They'll seek out uh, fellow shooters to ask, you know, how is this actually something we should be doing? And then we can build a coalition of support on the floor of parliament across across all parties, rather than just leave it to a few individuals. All right, guys, take a quick break. We'll be right back. The National Shooting Council is taking legal actions against the governments of three states that closed their gun shops down during the coronavirus pandemic because what they did was an attack on every shooter and the right to go shooting. The NSC is also leading the fight to stop the reclassification of firearms and is preparing important voting advice for every shooter in every state, territory and federal election coming up. That's why the NSC is the leading political organisation for shooters in Australia. So support us work by becoming a member today at nationalshooting.org.au. 
Bridget, you're talking a very good one, suppressors. Um, why don't mm. we have suppressors right now? Very, very good tool. We're not going to turn into snipers. I think initially, if the government was going to concede on one particular item, I think suppressors probably would be a fantastic start. They'd be great for ranges. They'd be great for mm. um, private land usage, not to you know upset the neighbours, not to upset the farmers when they're out there exactly. controlling animals. Fantastic mm. idea. Not going to turn into snipers. At this stage, I wouldn't want them registered, but if they had to do that and we could get them via that method, I'd be all for that. How do we, how do we make this happen? Yeah, well, I think, I think you're right. I think the more we convince Australians and, and policymakers and parliamentarians that we're not going to all turn into snipers just because we get our hands on a suppressor, but it's actually going to make um, those who are neighbouring a range happier. It's going to mean we can get more uh, food for the kitchen table um, you know, that it's actually going to be an OHS issue, for instance. I mean, how many um, partially deaf uh, um, older firearm users do you know? And, and that's because, you know, um, maybe they weren't wearing their ear gear, but also um, it's a pretty um, a loud noise. So I think there's a lot of positive reasons to support um, suppressors into uh, the the Australian firearm landscape and I know a lot of similar, culturally similar countries already allow them. So that's also a good argument to use. So, you know, it's something that I'll be bringing up in federal parliament in the coming 12 months. I'm already working on a piece of legislation. Um, so stay tuned uh, for that, Jason. But, you know, I do know that a variety of uh, other parliamentarians and state parliaments are also thinking about the same thing. So, you know, again, it's one of those issues. Things don't change overnight in politics. You need to build a, a well of support. You need to make the public arguments. Yes, you need science on your side, but you also need to be able to have those political arguments. So I, I think it's one we should try and have. And, you know, if you fail, keep trying. I mean, that's the story of Australian politics, that sometimes good results, happen after a long period of time and many, many attempts. So I'm up for the fight. I know I've got a lot of people uh, right around the country that want to support that as well. So um, stay tuned. I hope so. Just again, there's just two quick ones in, in talking about that too. I mean, uh, is, you know, talk about suppressors. I mean, is mm -hmm. the party in support of that? Is Michael McCormick in support of that? A lot of people say, well, you know, the Nationals, they're just beholden to the Liberal Party. But I think the Nationals have way, way more power, honestly, than they give themselves credit for. If they came to me and said, and I know it's probably not as simplistic as this, of course, but I, I would, they would come to me and say, we want to bend this gun. I said, no, no, the Nationals, sorry, we're not supporting that. We're going to support sporting shooters. We're going to support farmers. No, I'm sorry. If you can go out on your own, you're not going to be getting support from us for this particular policy. Why can't the Nationals, when things come up like that, I know you've crossed the floor, probably done yep. you know, some, some damage to your, your potential career moving <laughs> forward. I don't know. That was previously, so I guess it didn't when you were taking over the ministry. But at yep. the end of the day, you know, is the party supportive? There's no point you saying, um, you know, I want this or the suppressors will be fantastic if the rest of the party and Michael McCormick saying, well, no, that, you know, the, the Liberals are going to set the agenda and we're just going to follow the agenda. I mean, surely you guys have the power to say, no, we're not supporting that. Bad luck. Sorry, we're going to support people of our constituency and we're going to support sporting shooters. Yeah, well, Jason, you know, we're in a coalition. We're always the second party of government and we take a suite of election commitments to the country every time and the National Party is really involved in um, developing that as well. So just, you know, by way of example, the Mobile Black Spot program, for instance, that's seen 
you know, um, so many mobile black spot towers uh, in regional communities was the National Party saying to the Liberal Party, this is what we want and we need, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over a period of time to really put these up. Another one was the Rural Medical School Network, the Murray-Darling Basin Rural Medical School Network. So we knew as National Party MPs that unless we trained young doctors out in regional communities from woe to go, don't have them in the city, send them out for a year and to come back, but have them out in regional communities, regional capitals, from woe to go for their whole degree, we will see a 75% retention rate of those young doctors out in country communities. That is what the data says. And so it was us who said to the Liberals, well, yes, um, you want to, we're going to go to the election. Well, these are the things we wanted to be able to deliver. So we do have that conversation uh, in the coalition and that's why we've been able to deliver on those particular measures. One of those measures was the socioeconomic study into um, hunting and shooting that I was able to hand down, um, which, you know, as you know, as your listeners know, uh, shows the economic contributions of thousands, tens of thousands of Australians that are employed in this industry, but importantly also showed that hunters and shooters are happier and healthier than the general population of Australia, which I thought was a, a really great outcome um, for us to celebrate. So that was part of those uh, election commitments as well. So we do have that conversation. Um, in terms of putting the suppressor piece up to the party room. I know um, I'm, we've got federal council coming up uh, in, in a few months' time, in November. I'll be taking it to the floor of federal council. And I know the Victorian nationals, um, when we have our policy debates, it'll be part of that as well. So I'm happy to keep you uh, abreast of how that listening and watching the party. very closely, Bridget. Very closely. Yeah, I live and breathe you. this every day. Just to finish off, a, a quick thirty-second one. Your top, yeah. Bridget McKenzie. She's she's Michael McCormick. She has the power to you know <laughs> do whatever she wants in an ideal world. Um, I know it's a party, and it's a it's a group of people. But you're the leader of the party. In thirty seconds or less, Bridget McKenzie gets her gun laws. What do your gun laws look like? Your top three things. I'm not talking shooting grants. I'm not talking range funding. I'm talking proper legislation to make life easier for shooters. What are your top three? Obviously, suppressors are already done because we're starting that this year. But my number one would be uh, hunting ecotourism, uh, where we get welcome international visitors here to Australia for a really unique hunting experience. I had the opportunity to hunt overseas with uh, one of my sons for his 21st woodcocking in the Outer Hebrides and it was an amazing experience and I think we could build a lot of local jobs uh, with international visitors. I want to see land management practices changed uh, across the country where we open up more private and public land for access for hunters and shooters and thirdly, uh, I'd like the harmonisation to actually happen so that we can, as law-abiding firearm owners, travel around the country and participate in our sport freely. All right. And then for a very quick one, uh, the chances of us attaining or the legislation for suppressors getting over the line, positive, more chance of positive or negative? Well, as I said, you know, I'm going to give it a, a red hot crack. I think the arguments are really sensible uh, for instigating it. Um, and I'm just going to keep trying until we win the argument. All right, Bridget McKenzie joins me here on AHP, uh, National Party Senator for Victoria. Bridget, thanks for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime, Jason.
You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.